0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today it's Fourth Wednesday Theology and we're in chapter 21 of Herman Bobbing's The Wonderful Works of God. This chapter is talking about justification.
1: Fourth Wednesday. Fourth Wednesday Theology. You switch it up on It's me. only for this month, then it's back to third Wednesday we had after this. We to have this. a
0: Christmas episode.
1: That's right. Yes. We're going to be done with this book in three months, y'all. So that's pretty exciting. That will have been a fun two-year journey. It's a good run. No Chris Heidelman today. Merry Christmas to Chris, who is vacationing somewhere in the world. In light of the two-year, apparently we don't take vacations around here. We just, <laughs> no. just slave away on Chris the podcast. Takes, <laughs> Chris takes quite a few. <laughs> Maybe he's doing it right. He probably know. is. <laughs> In light of the two-year run, I do like just slowly working through a the theological work. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah. And there's no deadline. You're just going to read a chapter every month and get through it when you get through it. And that's what we've been doing. Um, I think here we get to the heart of Chris. On uh, Chris texted me and said this is one of the best chapters in the book, this chapter on justification. And I think it's because when we get to this topic, we're really getting to the heart of the gospel. I would say it this way. One of the most crucial things Christians need to understand is the difference between justification and sanctification, Uh, how these two doctrines differ, how they work, what they mean, and what it means to base our sanctification on our justification rather than basing our justification on our sanctification. So if these are newer words to you, if you're a, a younger theological thinker, I would encourage you to spend energy here understanding these two doctrines because they really are foundational to the gospel. And Bavink, uh, Bavink's stuff here is amazing. This is, I read this chapter a few days ago, just um, spent about an hour and a half one morning just working slowly through this chapter, and it was a joy. It was fun. It's worshipful. Yeah, very worshipful. Um, and he, he has a way of treating his subjects exhaustively without them feeling exhausting. You know, he does, he, he talks about a lot. But it doesn't feel like you're buried in some theological work. It's uh, very accessible. I think the sign of a good teacher or a good communicator is someone who, when they're talking about something, you think, "Oh, yeah, I've always wondered that." Like you're ans- mm-hmm. you're reading my mail, you're answering a question I've always had that I never heard a good answer to until right now. When you have that, we kind of call that sometimes the aha moment. When you have that moment in a sermon or in a, when you're reading a book or learning in a classroom, when you have that aha moment, it's sort of like, oh, things, you know, it's like the matrix, things like fall into place. And all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing everything clearly. And I think Bavink does that in this chapter with one particular question that I think has always perplexed me in the Old Testament that I think perplexes many people. It's come up repeatedly, Dusty, as we've preached through the Psalms in the summertime. And so I want to start there, because I think, actually, if we can understand this, it helps us understand the whole nature of justification. And this is what I like about Bobbing. is most people, if they were going to teach on justification, would start in the New Testament and start in Romans and start working out what Paul says about Mm -hmm. justification. But Bobbing starts in the Old Testament, and he starts with... The Nature of God and God's Covenant with Israel, and he starts there. And here's the, uh, here's the question that if you're an intelligent and astute reader of the Bible, you've probably had this question. Why does the Bible say that certain people are righteous, that we know actually aren't righteous, like Noah, where it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Or we read the same thing about Job, that there's none like Job on all the earth, an upright man who fears the Lord. You're like, well, kind of, but not exactly. Uh, You could also mention psalms like Psalm 7. This is where when we preach through the psalms in the summer, occasionally you come across these psalms like Psalm 7 that says this. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, for those of us that have a decent reformed doctrine of sin and that believe in like actually human beings are fallen and flawed and sinful, when some writer in the Bible says, judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness, we're like, well, um, that doesn't sound like the gospel. That's Why would you say judge me according to my righteousness? When the scriptures refer to David as a man after God's own heart, and we know, oh, well, yeah, but he also made some serious mistakes and committed some grievous sins. And so there are all these places in the Psalms and in the Old Testament where where people cry out to God and say, hey, treat me according to my righteousness. Psalm 18, verse 20 is another one of those places. Uh, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Now, gospel-loving preachers, when they come to a psalm like this, just do the Jesus juke. <sighs> well, Our friend Kyle McClellan always, always teases preachers about this. He he helps train preachers through the Simeon Trust, and he always says, hey, of course you've got to get to Jesus, but you can't do it by sidestepping the original author. You can't just say, well, when the psalmist wrote, I have kept the ways of the Lord, it's really Jesus saying he's kept the... Well, like, yeah, eventually this psalm points us to Jesus, but also this is written by a, a human being living yeah. in the 8th century BC, and you can't just say, "Oh, it was." He was speaking only about Jesus, which preachers do a lot, a lot of that with the Old Testament. Yeah, oh, it's just an easy point to. Yeah, Christ. you find anything about righteousness in the Old Testament, just make it go to Jesus. Um, but here's what Bob acknowledges. He says these. Uh, he mentions. Uh, let me read you a couple of quotes here. Uh, the same Old Testament, which so plainly proclaims the sinfulness and unrighteousness of the whole human race again and again makes mention of the righteous and of the upright in heart. He mentions here Noah, Job, these psalms that I've just mentioned. He goes on to write, But this is not the only thing which strikes us in the Old Testament. Still more surprising is the fact that these just ones, the upright of heart, or however they may be called, are not at all afraid of the righteousness of God and never once entertain the fear that they will be obliterated by his judgment. Indeed, for the godless, that righteous will prove terrible. He footnotes texts like Isaiah fifty nine eighteen, which says, according to their deeds, so will he repay, wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. So he mentions, hey, for the godless, for those who are God's enemies, the Old Testament says God's judgment is going to be terrible. But, Bavink goes on to write, the saints make this very righteousness the basis of their appeal and call upon it. This appeal of the righteous to the righteousness of God sometimes goes a step farther and takes the form, so incredible to us, of asking God to deliver them according to their righteousness. And he quotes again some of those Psalms that I just read. It is very evident from the Old Testament, therefore, Bavink writes, that not only are there righteous persons in Israel, but also that these look for their welfare and salvation precisely to the righteousness of God. This is likely to strike us as being a little strange. I like when a guy says that. I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't feel crazy. He's that like, I does, know what you're thinking. That does strike me as a little strange. For, Bavink goes on to write, we are inclined to oppose the justice of God to his mercy. The way we tend to think of it, then, is that we are condemned by the justice of God and saved by his mercy. But the saints of the Old Testament do not make such a contrast. They immediately, sorry, They intimately relate the justice of God to his grace and mercy, his goodness and truth, his favor and faithfulness. But how is all this possible? How can people, all of whom are sinners, ever stand in the holy presence of God as justified and righteous people? How can they ever have justice on their side? How can they, according to the justice of God, be acquitted of their sins and guilt? He proposes a few answers to that question maybe it's because of the sacrifices they they were faithful in making sacrifices and offerings he says nope the saints in israel knew very well that these in themselves could not be pleasing to the lord see psalm 40 verse 9 and psalm 51 verse 6 is the ground of the hope of salvation among the saints of the old testament perhaps their old righteous their own righteousness this thought might for a moment come up in our minds when we observe as in the person of job how strongly they are convinced of their innocence and how often they appeal to their integrity Faithfulness and righteousness, and how constantly they speak of their right or sentence, and finally, how the Lord Himself reckons them as being righteous. So, so maybe it's that these people actually had their own righteousness. Maybe they're just better people than we are. And these yeah. Job, Job and they, these Old Testament saints, they were just they were just more righteous than us. He says, "Nope." When we penetrate more deeply, this ground also falls away, because he says. This appeal of theirs to their righteousness is accompanied or interchangeably supplanted by the humblest confession of sins. Job speaks not only of the sins of his youth, but also in the end abhors himself and repents in dust and ashes. In Psalm 7 verse 9, David speaks of his integrity, but elsewhere he confesses his transgressions before the Lord and glorifies solely or glories solely in the forgiveness of sins. He mentions Psalm 32 there. So he says, Hey, these people who are appealing to God to vindicate them based on their own righteousness are also very honest about the fact that they are sinners. So they don't have a sense that when measured against God's standard, they're not guilty. They actually have a sense that they are sinners. And yet at the same time, they're able to say, God, vindicate me according to my righteousness. So. This should bother you a little bit, and hopefully if you've read the Old Testament and come across some of these Psalms, you'll be like, yeah, this is weird that these people are, are saying, God, according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, vindicate me. And so Boving says, hey, all of this is essential for us to understand the doctrine of justification. That's where he's going with this. So here's the connection that I think should change how we think about the Old Testament that will help us understand the nature of what God is doing and what his people are doing. In these passages, this is at the bottom of page 426, top of page 427. Here's what Bobbink writes. When the saints in Israel make mention of their righteousness, it is true that they certainly also think of their upright conduct and integrity before the face of the Lord. And they even pray that the Lord who tries the hearts will search them and see whether there be any wicked way in them. But this righteousness and integrity of theirs is not intended... As a moral perfection, such as that which the Pharisees of later days spoke, rather they are thinking of a moral integrity, which has its ground and source in a religious integrity. In other words, in a righteousness of faith. That's a key phrase. We'll come back to that. This becomes apparent from the fact that the righteous are also frequently represented as being the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the faithful, the humble, the meek, and they who fear the Lord and have no other hope but him. The earmark of these people... Is not that they are free of sin, but rather that in the midst of oppression and persecution, they put their trust in the Lord and seek their salvation and blessedness in him alone. Nowhere is there any deliverance for them, but in the Lord their God alone. They look for his salvation, cling to his word, delight in his law, and expect all things only from him. They are not a people like the later Pharisees, who in opposition to God insist on their rights and privileges, but rather a people who are on God's side and who in alliance with him take a position against his and their own enemies. Let me say in different words what Bavink is saying there. He mentions these people are, are thinking of a, a moral integrity they have that is grounded in a righteousness of faith. In other words, they're not saying, God, I am perfect. Please judge me according to my perfection. What they're saying is, God, I fear you. And I know that your word says people who fear you and seek to obey you, you bless them. And so will you look at my life and look at what's going on around me and realize that these evil people that are seeking my life deserve your judgment because they're rebellious against you and vindicate me according to my integrity, according to my trust in you. So Baving is saying that this appeal to righteousness is an appeal to God taking care of his people. Mm -hmm. That, hey, I'm on the Lord's side of this thing. The Lord has enemies in the world. God, would you act because I'm one of your people Yeah. to read Psalm 18, you know, through that, that lens. That's what Bavik is saying is that these, these writers, Psalm, Psalmists and people like Job and Noah that the Old Testament says are righteous and that appeal to God based on their righteousness are really appealing to him to say, God, I'm on your side. See that, see yeah. the integrity that I have as a worshiper of you. See me in See me in my righteousness, which you've given to me. No, he's, no. well, he's going to get there. See me in my righteousness. But listen to this. This is, the, this is the paragraph that I was like, oh, that's, I've got an exclamation point out in the margin here because I was like, that's, that's mind-blowing. When such a people in its prayer and beseeching makes an appeal to its own and the Lord's righteousness, it means to say that the Lord is by virtue of his covenant obligated to deal justly with it over against its enemies, for it is named after him and walks in the fear of his name. He has chosen his people not for their righteousness or integrity, but because the Lord voluntarily loved them, and because of the oath which he had sworn to their fathers, he references there Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and Deuteronomy 9.5 and 6. The covenant with this people is based solely upon his good pleasure, By virtue of that covenant, it cannot be denied that he is bound to that people and has, so to speak, taken upon himself the obligation to maintain that people, preserve it, and grant it the whole salvation which he promised. The righteousness of God, to which a saintly Israel constantly appeals in its oppression, is an appeal to that attribute according to which, by virtue of his covenant, the Lord is obligated to deliver his people From all of their enemies. Now here's where it gets amazing. It is not so much an obligation which rests upon God because of his people. Amen. But it is an obligation which rests upon him because of himself. He is no longer free. He freely related himself to his people. And so he owes it to himself, to his own covenant and his own oath, to his own word and promise, to remain the God of his people, despite all their unrighteousness. Hence, we so frequently read that it is for the sake of God's name, of his covenant, of his glory, his honor, that he gives his people the benefits which he has promised them. Even though the people may become unfaithful and apostate, he remembers his covenant. The righteousness of God, to which a pious Israel appeals, does not form a contrast to his goodness and salvation, but is related to it and stands in close connection with its with his truth and faithfulness. It confines God to His own word and promise, and obliges Him out of sheer grace to save His people from all their oppression. What Bovin is saying is, this is all rooted in God's covenant. God, I love yep. the, the the statement he makes here that God is no longer free because He has freely related Himself to His people, and so He owes it to Himself to remain the God of His people. So. The 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 whole Old Testament operates with this background of covenant. Yeah. And when the psalmist is saying, God vindicate me according to my righteousness, Bavik is saying, When when these writers are appealing to their own righteousness, what they're appealing to is God, you've made a promise to save your people, and I'm one of your people. So you have to save me because you you're faithful to yourself. And so what that understanding does, as he just mentioned at the end of that paragraph, is it it changes how we tend to think about the paradigm of works and grace, right? We tend to think if someone's saying, just, you know, vindicate me according to my righteousness, that what you're saying is I've been a good person. <laughs> you should honor the fact that I've been a good person. But Bobing says in light of covenant, what these people are really saying is God, you made a promise to your people and I'm one of your people. And I have tried to walk in integrity before you. And therefore you're bound by oath to yourself, to be faithful, to deliver your people. So would you deliver me as one of your people? The amount of security in the covenant of God is amazing. And then Bobbing just flushes that out. Well, and I like what he's doing here is he's saying, this is a righteousness of faith. That's, so that's the language that Paul uses, right? In Romans when he says, you know, now apart from the law, a righteousness by faith has been made known. Um, Boving says this, this, righteousness that these writers appeal to in the Old Testament is itself a righteousness of faith because they're saying, God, you have to deal with your people based on their righteousness and yours. And so they're not appealing to their moral perfection. He, he contrasts between moral perfection and moral integrity, which I think is a helpful contrast. It's, it's, it applies, it's the same way we live today, right? When you think of what it means to be a Christian, well, it means to be justified by faith. In Christ, But it also means you're trying to live with moral integrity. You're trying to honor the Lord as best you can in your life. You're not going to do that perfectly. That's why we confess our sin every week as we gather as God's people. And so we're always aware of our shortcomings and sins, and we're always confessing. But also, at, at the core of a, a Christian, there should be a kind of moral integrity. Just, I'm, I'm trying to walk faithfully with God, and that actually matters to God. That moral integrity means something. Because it's grounded in God's promises to his people and me leaning, leaning into that promise and saying, God, you should, you should be kind to me, be gracious to me, be favorable to me, even though I'm a sinner, because you've made promises to your people. Now I've only gotten through like the first nine pages of this chapter. So (laughs) there's a lot more to say after that. And sometimes just, just the covenant alone and the faith in the covenant and that promise is enough to sustain me. Right. In certain moments. Right. Well, and I think what Bobing does is a good biblical theologian is he's saying, look, the doctrine of justification is grounded in covenant. And so we got to understand God's faithfulness to his covenant because that's what gets us to Jesus. And that's what gets us to justification by faith as we understand it in the New Testament. But covenant is the backdrop for all of that. God has bound himself to his people. God has obligated himself to be the savior of his people. And so here's the here's the problem that gets created. Um, let me read you a text that uh that sets up the problem. This is why this is worshipful because Bobinx like nine or ten chapters deep before you get to Romans eight or the New Testament or Jesus at all. Right. So Exodus twenty three verse seven says this: Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So Bavik wants you to ask, if God says he won't acquit the wicked, then how can he justify ungodly people? This is the same question Paul asks in Romans 4, right? How is it that God can justify the ungodly? That's not fair. That's not just. Justice means people should have to bear what they deserve. They should have to answer for the, the wrong things they've done. And uh, there are just some turns of phrase in this chapter about justification that are really rich ways of phrasing it. Here's one of them on page 432. What God says of himself that he will never do, Exodus 23, 7, that he nevertheless does, but he does it without jeopardizing his righteousness. This is the wonder of the gospel. He goes on to say, God, the God of justice, has in the gospel created another order of justice than that which obtained under the law. The law has become of no effect because of sin. So God has in the gospel set up another order of justice. To it, men must also subject themselves, but this order, by way of faith, grants that righteousness which they require in order to stand before the throne of God. The gospel is accordingly at one and the same time an order of justice and an order of grace. And so he's, he's getting us to all the logic of Romans where, where Paul says, hey, God is at the same time just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That's the magic, that's the beauty, that's the glory of the gospel. Um, and for the rest of the chapter, Bobbing just wants to make the point, hey, this, this justification that we have in Christ is not to be separated from the person of Christ. It's not a thing you can have apart from having Jesus, okay? And I think it's important that Bob Vink emphasizes this because for a lot of people, especially Protestants, if you think about Luther's recognition of justification by faith, which changed his whole life and really launched the Reformation, the doctrine of justification has always been central to Protestant preaching of the gospel. And the danger is that our convictions about justification by faith can become bare theology mm-hmm. divorced from the person of Christ and from love for Christ. So I know people who are like really militant about the doctrine of justification, yeah. but they don't seem to be very in love with Jesus. Um, Bavinck says the righteousness, which justifies us is not to be separated from the person of Christ in order to stand before the judgment of God, to be acquitted of guilt and punishment and to share in the glory of God and eternal life. We must have Christ, not something of him, but Christ Himself—that's what Bavinck wants you to know—is hey, do you know how you get justified by having Christ Himself? That's what happens. You, you, when you have Christ, you are justified, and Christ is the one who has um, taken your place and made justification possible. Let me read uh, one more spot. Righteousness is not something that lies outside of Christ and can be accepted apart from his person. Christ himself is our righteousness, and he is at the same time our wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. One cannot accept the one benefit of Christ without the other, for they all together lie contained in his person. Whoever accepts Christ as his righteousness by faith at the same time receives him as his sanctification. Christ cannot be accepted in parts. Whoever possesses Christ possesses him in his entirety, and he who lacks his benefits lacks his person also. That's a beautiful way of keeping Christ at the center of this doctrine and saying what we get in the gospel is the Lord Jesus himself and all that he has given us. It's also a beautiful way of going back moments ago to even the question of God's justice and God's mercy and how all that just collides right there in Christ. To your point, when we talk about justification, we tend to just get real heady and theological about it and almost too too clean cut about it and God's mercy and his justice collide here in this paragraph on 442. There is a bunch of (laughs) building out of this doctrine that we haven't done. And you need to just go read this chapter because we'd spend two hours on the podcast if we tried to build it out as well as Bavink does. So, you know, read this chapter and strengthen your grasp of what the doctrine of justification is. But the other thing I really like about what Bavink does is on the last two pages of this chapter, he basically gets after the existential reality of justification. He's basically saying, okay, great. So God justifies sinners by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, so what are we supposed to do with that? How is that a comfort to us? What is that supposed to do for us? And here's a powerful, I, I read this and I was like, oh, this is what Tim Keller does all the time. And I think Keller, I mean, Keller's a big Bovink reader. And I suspect maybe he is just borrowing from Bovink when he does this. This is at the top of page 448. Um, Bavink writes, so long as we permit the forgiveness of sins to depend entirely or in part upon the emotional excitements which we enjoy and upon the good works which we do, we continue to live more or less in dread and fear. I want to I read that again. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hear, hear what he's saying. You, that's ex- that is a sentence explaining our times. Exactly. As long as we permit the forgiveness of sins to depend entirely or in part upon the emotional inc- excitements which we enjoy and upon the good works which we do we continue to live more or less in dread and fear what he's saying is don't if you if the forgiveness of if your sense of being forgiven is dependent on how excited you are about Jesus or on how good of a life you're living then you're gonna live more or less in dread and fear, even though you may truly be a Christian and truly be justified, if your sense of forgiveness is contingent on how excited am I about Jesus or worship or showing up at church or being a gospel community or how excited am I about my own soul or, you know, how how good is my sort of emotional relationship with God right now? Or how good is my life? What are my good works like? Am I being as obedient as I'd like to be? If those things are, are what my forgiveness of sins is based on, I'm going to live in dread and fear. He says, then we are not yet children who do things prompted by love, but still slaves and servants who do it for reward. But this all changes when by faith we understand that our salvation rests exclusively in God's grace and in the righteousness of Christ. Then we leave off building up self-righteousness and we no longer trouble ourselves with working out our own salvation for these things are fixed already in Christ Jesus. We belong to Christ who was raised from the dead in order that we should bring forth fruits unto God. Those are for the first time truly good works which proceed from faith and are done according to God's will and are directed to his honor. Now, he's writing here about Christians who believe and are justified. But this is what I hear Keller do frequently is to say, hey, look, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to really actually come back to the heart of the fact that your sins are forgiven in Christ because that's what sets you free from a life driven by slave and fear and is God going to reward me or punish me? And what moves you into a life that's generated by love for God, by a sense of like Christ has forgiven me and I owe, I, I have nothing left to pay. He's paid all my debts. And therefore, I want to obey him out of love. I'm not driven to obey him out of fear. And since I'm liberated, that just changes everything. All right, so what does it mean to have this kind of freedom? Here's an important sense: The believer is not liberated from the law in the sense that he can live according to the desires of his heart that he, as it is nowadays put, remember he's writing this in like 1919, as it is nowadays put, that he can live out his life according to the bent and direction of his sinful nature. On the contrary, the believer is much more firmly bound to the law than was the case before. For faith does not make the law of no effect, but establishes it. He is bound to the law by gratitude. He is, however, free from its demand. And it's curse. And that's, if you get that, then you get the heart of justification. You get the heart of all that Paul is saying in in Romans. The whole burden of Romans is to say, look, you are set free from the demand of the law. You're set free from the curse of the law. You're set free from the law (laughs) standing over you and holding you to account. And now you're free to be a lover of the law because you love the God who gave it. And that's beauty. And that's wonder. So, Boving doesn't just want to help you understand justification doctrinally, he wants you to see when you embrace justification by faith, it brings a deep freedom and joy to your life, and it should move you more and more to do things out of love rather than out of fear. And Here's the last two sentences of this chapter. The believer who is justified in Christ is the freest creature in the world at least so it ought to be, (laughs) which is just a great way to end. That's absolutely true, and at least it ought to be. So he's saying you still got to apprehend this by faith. You've got to grab hold of it because it is true and and anchor your heart in it and live your life um, through it, and it can awaken that kind of freedom and joy in you. Those last couple of pages, and then you turn the page to 450, and you read the lines that you just read, it just ends like a movie that's ended too soon. You know, yeah. you're just like, ah, oh, say more. Yeah. It's just very freeing. It's very worshipful. I got to the end of this chapter, which is not, you might do this more than me, um, but I don't usually get to the end of a chapter on theology and go, oh, I, I really want to reread this right now. I felt you that know? exact same thing. I started reading it again. It's just so, it, it's so freeing. Yeah. It's worshipful. It's, um, he just has this way of, Pulling justification out, not in the sense of like putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, but just worshipfully explaining what it means to be a Christian saved by saved by Christ and then just held in the covenant. Yeah. Just secure in that. And the the beauty of being held in that is just liberating. Yeah. We've merely scratched the surface of the good things Bavik has to say. There are hundreds of scripture references in this chapter. Um, One of the things I love about Bavik is when you read his writing, he's just tossing off scripture references like every other sentence, and most of them are in parentheses in the actual text. So, you know, you can just open your Bible and go, okay, where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Sometimes they're footnoted, but in this chapter particularly, he's walking you through the entire Bible, helping you understand God's covenant, the nature of what it means for God to justify people by grace through faith, what it means to be righteous and to be declared righteous in Christ. And so, uh at the risk of just beating a dead horse, go read the chapter yourself, you'll be, uh, you'll be awakened and you'll rejoice and you'll find your, your, your theology deepened. Uh, this is again, to go back to where we started, sort of the heart of Protestant Christianity. I mean, the doctrine of justification lies very close to the center of the Reformation. and it really is the thing dusty as you said that like when you understand it, you go, oh, this is why the gospel's good news. like it just makes you <laughs> makes you go back to, why is the gospel good news in the first place? What What was it that just awakened me to the goodness of God? Oh, yeah, it was this. It was this This good news that my sins are forgiven in Christ freely. And uh, so may your—I uh, know the year is ending this week, so it'd be a great way to start the new year. Justified. Just with a solid grasp. Yeah. A, justified, so become a Christian if you're not, yeah. but also uh, with a, with a solid grasp of what it means to be justified. So— um, hope this episode has blessed you. Thanks for um, walking through this year with us at the Wednesday Conversation. We look forward to turning the corner into a new year and tackling whatever topics you want us to. And by the way, we're going to start the new year by engaging some listener feedback and talking about some things people have critiqued us on. Yeah, it's some, out there. Some emails we got from folks who were like, "Hey, you didn't do a very good job on this episode." We're going yeah, to bring fair. we're going to bring all that to you starting next Wednesday. We'll see you in the new year.
0: The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.